the world's full of, of potholes and piles of crap, right? And the difference is, do you quit or do you figure no. out how to shake it off your boot and, and go in a different direction or, or, or just plow right on through it? Yeah. There's some companies that are so good at just telling you the good stuff, what they want you to know. And I am yeah. the worst at that. I tell you whatever's on my mind. I think every company's making mistakes and getting themselves in ditches and having to get out of ditches. That's just part of it. Right. So hopefully yeah. you, you do it, you minimize it, but it's, there's no magical formula for me to, other than to say, okay, well, let's don't step in that same pile twice. <laughs> Welcome to the founder's journey podcast, inspiration, education for founders by founders. Welcome back to Founders Journey Podcast, uh, Peter. Good to uh, good to be back for uh, a new year here in uh, in twenty twenty four. I'm really excited. I'm really excited to have one of the good founders on, Drew. He's like, if you ever talk to him, which you get to today, it's uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, yeah, glad to uh, glad to have Drew Edwards with us as our guest today. Drew is the uh, founder and CEO of Ingo Money. They're a venture backed fintech. That uh, Drew started back in 2001. So it's a great story on kind of the winding road that this business has taken um, to really become one of the leading uh, providers of mobile money services and instant account funding and payment services. So if you know fintech, you know what that stuff is. If you don't, Drew will uh, Drew will explain it as we go. His uh, his career as a founder goes beyond Ingo and uh, and back when he uh, founded and served as CEO and. Uh, and chairman of Town Services, which he took public uh, back uh, several years ago. So, Drew, uh, really great to uh, have you on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me, Greg. And you guys are making me younger than I really am because town, <laughs> town would have been 1995. Well, if we could make you younger, we would have made ourselves younger too along the way. But yeah, didn't we, work. I think we all could use all the help we could get at this point. That's right. So, Drew, take, start us from the top here. How did you uh, how did you get started with uh, with Ingo back in, in two thousand one? I know it's been a winding road. Oh boy! That, so that's that's a loaded question. How did I get started? I I, uh, I actually got fired from my first company after I took it public, and then went to the Bahamas for a couple of years, and came back and said, "Hey, I, this sucks. I've got to do something." And tried to get the chairman of town, who was running another public company, to hire me. And he said, you know, well, I'll hire you, but then I'm going to end up firing you and that won't be any fun. But uh, which I said, are you crazy? That's the dumbest thing anybody's ever said to me. He said, well, you're you just you can't go play in the NFL and then come back and coach high school football. So you're not going to like it here at my company. But anyway, he said, I'll, I'll invest in you. So here's half a million dollars. Just go come up with an idea. And then three other board members did that. The same people that fired me. Next thing you know, I've got two million dollars. So the idea we came up with back in 2001 was, hey, let's start a Hispanic bank. And don't ask me if I can speak Spanish because I don't, right? But okay. So wait, I just want to pause you there for one second before you continue with this story. Because we said this was a crazy story. So Drew, if you're just listening to this on the, if you're just listening to voice, Drew is definitively not Hispanic. So, okay. So let's continue from that point. In fact, we had opened our first 
physical branch in Atlanta and I had customers and employees, neither of which I could talk to, um, <laughs> but we raised money. And, you know, there were seven or 800 Hispanic immigrants in the Atlanta market at the time. And most of them were undocumented and, and they were hardworking and nobody was serving them. And we were trying to solve that problem. And interestingly enough, I did hire a Hispanic female to actually run the bank um, who stayed with us for years, I guess. But that was the point we were operating 12 of these physical locations in Atlanta where we discovered this need that still permeates the business today to get instant access to your money. And if somebody wrote you a check, especially if you're a Hispanic immigrant and you're not from this country, can't buy anything with a check. You can't walk into Starbucks with a check or send money home, right? So you've got to figure out how to actually get your good funds, we used to call them. So that was the beginnings of our notion that money should be faster and money should be good and spendable and, and real. And, and all these other payment mechanisms just weren't getting us there. So for the first, I don't know, seven years of this company's life, we were running these Hispanic bank branches, but we didn't have a bank charter. We were partnered with a bank. That's the unfriendly term is we rented a charter from a financial institution, which means the branches all said El Banco de Nuestra Community had a division of National Bank of Commerce out of Memphis, Tennessee. So that's, I'd call that phase one before the pivot of this business until SunTrust Bank came along and acquired that bank and didn't want any part of this business that we were in. And so 18 months of fighting to stay alive with those guys, we finally exited that part of the business, exited that relationship with SunTrust and became Chexar, right? So we were El Banco, and then we became Chexar because we kept this risk management platform that we were using to underwrite and convert those checks into good funds for these Hispanic consumers. And we said, hey, let's just go power all the real banks to do that in their own branches instead of us doing that ourselves. So we were growing like crazy for seven years, and then we had to stop and went to zero revenue and start over Seven or eight years later, that was 2008, I think. So why, why did you have to stop? What, what, was, what was that kind of that pivot where you, where you actually had to make that conscious decision to, okay, we're going to turn off all of our revenue? Well, we were operating bank branches at the pleasure of another bank. So in the banking business, you have to have a banking license. It's called a charter, right? Yep. And so we were partnered with this bank out of Memphis. So each of these branches... The modern term today would be a bank-sponsored model, but we were actually running physically, physically running branches of another bank under an operating agreement where they were our customers and it was our revenue. But technically, legally, these were customers of the bank because they were the only ones with a license to operate these branches. So when SunTrust acquired them, literally the general counsel sat down in front of me and said, okay, we're, how do we end this? because we don't do what you're doing here at SunTrust. So it was a it was an 18 month to 2 year fight just to stay alive, but they made us stop using their charter, so therefore we had to stop providing the services that we were providing to our consumers. In today's world, if you were a neobank like Chime, you're operating under some sort of similar agreement with Bancorp or or MetaBank path, where it's called, et cetera. And if either one of your banks or if your banks told you, okay, we're cutting you off, you'd be in the same position. You, you, you've got to stop. You no longer have a license to do what you're doing. So our world came to an end. 
we rolled them all up in a bow and sold the 12 branches to a real bank and kept took the money and recapitalized ourselves and kept our technology platform and then started selling the technology. That's the beginnings of what we might call financial technology today or fintech. We started selling it to other banks uh, and then we got profitable about a year later. It was a lot cheaper, by the way, being a fintech than running 12 bank branches. <laughs> I mean, so you're effectively out of business in 2000. For a few and months, <laughs> you've got it. You you didn't, you didn't get paid, by the way. Right. <laughs> so, all right. So you so now you restarted this thing as a fintech before fintech was a thing, right? We did, and we got profitable, Greg. But but I knew I was in a bad place because I had gotten profitable helping. Um, financial service providers, including banks, cash checks. Um, and about half of those customers were short-term lenders or payday lenders, which I don't have a problem with. But as an entrepreneur, I'm sitting here going, okay. And we hadn't taken any venture money yet, just my investors' money from the people that had fired me at the prior company and other folks we passed the hat and raised money doing but I'm going, wait a minute, I'm cashing checks. And we all know checks are going to go away someday, although they still haven't gone anywhere. But but you don't want to be in that business or the DVD business. And we're doing it for an industry. At least half of our customers are under fire from Washington. Washington's trying to kill them. So my chances of an exit weren't very bright in my mind as long as that was our business. Yeah. So we immediately started focusing on, all right, how are we going to get into something that the world will care about. Our customers loved us. Our customers cared about us. But how are we going to ever sell this company or monetize this if we're cashing checks, which some people consider to be a buggy whip, and doing it for a group of customers that Washington wants to kill, right? So that's yeah. what kind of led us to the second pivot. So, I mean, it's it's wild, Drew, because essentially you guys are trying to create this business on the fly, doing essentially what you can at that point to just sort of stay in business after this after this, you know, issue with with the previous bank. And but you're solving all along, you're solving a huge problem, right? I mean, you're focused on a huge need, which is really this, and maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way, but it's really this issue around the unbanked largely, right? It's it's moving money easier to people who maybe don't have the same access in a lot of ways that the three of us do. Yeah, so let me be clear. I mean, right, 22 years we've been doing this, we've always been considered regulatory friendly, right? So we've never done anything in this company that any regulator to our knowledge has ever considered to be predatory or anything other than helping the underserved, right? Part of this community. Right. What I'm yeah. referring to is uh, an investor, most of them on the West Coast or in New York, yeah. are just going to write off these categories based on macro you know, rules they have. We only want to be in growing marketplaces. You know, we want we don't want to be in regulated spaces, whatever they're different rules are, but we've never, customers have always loved what they've done with us and we still do it. We do this today. If you skip forward for PayPal and Venmo and ADP, all the big guys across America use our platform to 
enable digital access to these check proceeds, which still are around, and that's not all we do today. It's more a, for, a part of our structure, and but once you've taken millions of dollars from other people uh, as a founder, you don't get to just go, oops, changed my mind. You know, I guess you could. You can just bankrupt the company and start over, and then there goes your reputation in terms of the ability to raise money the next time. So I've, I felt like for 22 years now, once you start a business and you take other people's money, A, you don't own it anymore. Even if you own 95% of it, if you took somebody else's money, then you have shareholders and it changes all the rules. But B, it's kind of like, you know, hanging on to the wolf by the ears. If you, if you let it go before somebody kills it, before you exit the business properly, before you sell it, then that wolf's going to chew your face off. So you just, you just keep hanging on and you don't let go until you find a path forward. And our path forward was, okay, let's sell this technology that we were using for ourselves to other banks, which we did. And one of those banks, Regions Bank out of Birmingham, which is a Fortune 500 company, calls up Visa and says, hey, I think you should meet Ingo. And Visa at the time, mobile deposit capture, this notion of taking a picture of your check and deposit it into your bank account, which we all yep. do, just coming onto the scene. But for this underbank consumer, most of these banks wouldn't even let them have a bank account. That's what the prepaid industry was built around was a, a risk-free bank account, a bank account you can't overdraw for all of these people that, that the banks didn't want to trust or underwrite or for whatever reason. And so Visa literally came to see me two days after Regions introduced them and said, look, we Regions tells us you can underwrite a check from a mobile device. We were doing that for H&R Block and MoneyGram and several other companies out there in addition to Regions. And Visa started telling us about this new transaction type they had, which today is known as Visa Direct, and it's a huge deal in the, in the payments industry, but nobody was using it. It was a European transaction. And they sat down in my office two days before Thanksgiving and said, if you can underwrite a check on a mobile device in real time, we can give you the ability to push the money to anybody's bank account. And effectively, we can create a digital funding source turning checks into good funds and pushing them to Visa cards. And so that became the very first use case for Visa. It was called the original tra credit transaction back then, but for Visa Direct. And that's really when we started taking institutional money because now we needed some real capital to get behind, behind the risk and the losses associated with, I couldn't, I couldn't take all that on by myself. And so with, with digitally cashing the checks, now you're going to take the riskiest instrument in the payments industry, which is a paper check, and you're going to let somebody have all their money from it, somebody that a bank won't underwrite, so they're in a prepaid card to begin with, and you're going to let them keep the piece of paper. It's like and walk into any check casher and cash the very next minute, right? It's a stupid, it's really stupid if you think backwards. Um, and it took us a couple of years to, to get control of the fraud, right? To get to enough scale that we could beat it. And to this day, we're really the only company out there that does that. We took it off our website. We don't pay our salespeople to sell it only because my investors are like, you need to focus on the, the killing the check, not cashing the check. And yet that thing's growing 20% year over year still to this day. I don't tell anybody about it. I don't pay anybody to go sell it. Our phone just rings 
because it's so hard to do, nobody else does it in the market. And that's just the what we still call the legacy side of our business. You know, it's really amazing, right? When you look at it, I mean, I, I think a lot of a lot of times when you start to get institutional money coming in, and you reference this a little bit, you start to make decisions based on these kind of really broad macro trends and things like that. And there's no doubt, I think, when you fast forward 30, 40 years, the check, you know, the way that we think about a check today is going to either not exist or be a lot different, right? But but the amount of money that can be made, I think, by founders looking at, there's really two things, two parts of that, right? Number one is looking at those areas that are the really long tail of these industries where everybody else is kind of pulling out of them. And to say, these things are, these trends, you know, we think in terms of like months or maybe a couple of years, these things, these things can take decades to really take hold sometimes, right? There's an awful lot of money to be made. And I think the other really key takeaway there for me, I think if you're a founder, is solving the really hard problem that nobody else wants to solve, right? I think that's that's the other, I think, really big part of that, Drew, is like, that is just a, like you said, I mean, it's an incredibly hard problem that everybody else says, no, I don't want to touch it. But by solving it, you carve out this really unique niche. And I know that's a small part. Well, I mean, it's a, it's only a part of the business today. It's transformed, but in a lot of ways, maintaining that has really fueled the growth of the rest of the business as well, right? Well, and if if we were Netflix, it's our DVD program, and I don't know if everybody's as old as I am, but <laughs> I used to go to Blockbuster all the time and rent movies on the weekend, take them home to my kids or whatever, and this little company, Netflix, came along and said, hey, I can do it. There's a better way to do that. I'll put them in the mailbox to you, right? I mean, you just go online on the mobile app and subscribe to what DVDs you want, and I'll mail them to you, and I'll give you an envelope, and you send them back when you're done. And again, that was a great business, just like what we're doing for checks is a great, profitable business meeting a very important need in the marketplace. But nobody cared, even at Netflix, Unless there was a future plan, right? And the future plan Mm -hmm. was we're going to steal the relationship from Blockbuster and what's coming is this thing called broadband and bandwidth and we're going to be able to stream these movies eventually straight into their TVs and or now into their phones and their tablets. But only recently, I mean very recently, I don't know the exact day, did did Netflix stop actually delivering CDs to people's mailboxes. So it'll carry on for much longer than you think. And there's a company out there called Redbox that still makes a ton of money renting DVDs out of kiosks, right? So the check side of things for us is two things. It's a big moneymaker for us and it's truly solving a consumer need, but it's also um, a stepping stone for then taking it to the next level. Hey guys, whenever we cash a consumer's check on their mobile phone for one of our big partners, what's really happening is that consumer got one payment instrument, but they really wanted the different kind of payment instrument. They want the money in their bank account or they want the money somewhere else. So why don't we stop sending them the check and charging the consumer to change that check and go to the corporates who are sending those checks because consumers have stopped writing checks. This is coming from B2C transactions. This is coming from bill pay and corporate 
you know, payouts and refunds and all kinds of stuff going out there. Why don't we skip a step here and go to those corporates and give them a digital solution to actually ask that consumer, where do you want this money? Right. And then we can digitally put it there instantly, real funds into anything in their pocket. And now they don't have to wait and they don't have to pay to convert that risky instrument into good funds. And we can charge the corporate to do that. And we charge them less than it would have cost them to produce the check to begin with. Right. And so today we do that for big insurance companies like like Geico and Liberty Mutual and others, we do it for seizures, for sports betting. We do tipping payouts. We do every industry that's producing a check or what I'd call slow digital ACH is ripe for modernizing. But without that DNA in the beginning of Visa saying, hey, if you can underwrite the risk on that check, I can partner with you to fund their accounts without, in the old school days, you'd have to have a settlement relationship with every bank to be able to do that instantly and safely. This is before FedNow and RTP and even push to card or PayPal or any of that stuff, I guess. And so that old instrument, that, that problem in, in my entrepreneurial mind of how am I ever going to get out of this company if I'm, you know, cashing checks, it actually was the foundation for instant money and it's what led me to the biggest payment network in the world and partnered with MasterCard and Visa and all of them now, I guess. And it was because they were trying to now do like Netflix and say, well, let's just skip the whole DVD and stream the movie straight to their phone. Let's just skip the whole check and stream the cash straight to their bank account. And that's what Ingo does. And that's where the fastest growing part of our business is, is trying to help everybody actually still serve the consumer by getting them the money where they want it instantly, not make them pay for what I call a layover, right? I don't want to go to New York through Chicago. I want to go to New York. Don't make me go through Chicago. Don't give me a check. You know, I might pay yep. somebody to convert that to good money. So, but believe yeah. it or not, the check side is still growing um, and probably will through my lifetime. That's it's, it's unreal, you know, and I think there's just, there's so much of that when you look at, when you look at businesses out there that, you know, they get over anxious to start to, you know, okay, we're going to get rid of this business. VCs are classic for this, right? Dump this business, pick up this business, and you're just leaving a ton of money on the table and we're leaving a ton of growth on the table. You know, Greg, I, I had a fellow entrepreneur of mine who's smarter than me and made a lot more money than me over the last 25 years tell me one time, a long time ago, he was venture back. And when I went public in my first company, I skipped the whole venture process. Back then in the late 90s, the, the public markets were acting like venture capitalists and giving anybody money as long as you weren't making money, as long as you were growing like crazy, which is the opposite of, of really what it should be. But he, he told me one time, he said, Drew, even when you take other people's money, you should try to run the company every day like you're going to own it forever because these decisions around what's Wall Street going to care about or what's the VC going to care about oftentimes can cause you to make bad business decisions, not the same decision you would have made if you'd have, if it was just your company and you were just trying to make money and serve your customers. So I can't tell you I've been great at that, but I can tell you I do believe that's the right answer if you're an owner or a founder 
is run it like you were going to own it forever. Don't try and put lipstick on a pig. Don't try and dress things up. Build a real good quality business. And then as Warren Buffett would say, the right people will recognize that and put value on that. Amen. Uh, it's hard to yeah, do. It's so true. It is. This is what I mean by the good people. Like you, you've told me that before and you talked about it. And I know like, how did you come to make that? Like, I don't know, it was the fourth pivot, but the final one to where Ingo's headed today. How did you make that change? Well, I didn't do any of this on purpose, by the way, Peter. I, I think I've stepped in every pile of shit in the pasture. But <laughs> you, you don't do that on purpose, but we the world's full of, of potholes and piles of crap, right? And the difference is, do you quit or do you figure no. out how to shake it off your boot and, and go in a different direction or, or, or just plow right on through it? So I, yeah. I can't claim to be sometimes i feel really stupid because why do i keep stepping in these piles but at the same time <laughs> i'm not sure any company if they really told you the truth yeah there's some companies that are so good at just telling you the good stuff what they want you to know and i am yeah. the worst at that i tell you whatever's on my mind i think every company's making mistakes and getting themselves in ditches and having to get out of ditches. That's just part of it. Right. So hopefully yeah. you, you do it, you minimize it, but it's, there's no magical formula for me to, other than to say, okay, well, let's don't step in that same pile twice. <laughs> and even that, like, I mean, look, yeah. I know I speak for the three of us safely that even that, I mean, I've, I've literally stepped in the same pile of shit four or five times, just turned around, walked right back into it, turned around, walk into it again. Somebody moved it. Slip, break, slip fall into it, yeah, roll yeah. around in it for a while. And until somebody's like, dude, take a shower. You're disgusting. You know, when like, I went, uh, I, don't know, I don't know that I should publish this, but we went, um, when we were coming out of that Albanco phase, you mentioned going public. We actually went through a road show and got listed on the NASDAQ. This is this, this company, the second time around. And these underwriters, and they weren't quality underwriters. It's a big mistake. But they literally, 15 minutes before the hour, told the SEC to take us public. And then they changed their mind and didn't show up for the pricing call and didn't give us our money, right? And so I, all of a sudden, I woke up and I'm... I'm listed on the NASDAQ. I've, I've got maybe 10 grand in the bank and an $800,000 a month burn rate. And they didn't give me my money. And I owe a private jet company and bound the printer and a law firm a million dollars. And and we had to figure out how to delist. And the point of all that, without any money, you can't talk to anybody because you're in a quiet period. But I walked into the time I had that bank board. It was 13 board members. And... One of those board members, and I walked in to, to, to start the process of filing bankruptcy. And the, one of my board members looked at me and he said, what do you mean filing bankruptcy? I said, well, we don't have any money. He said, just yesterday, you were in New York telling everybody we're worth $200 million. Now, today, you're telling me we're going bankrupt. He said, what happened between yesterday and this company? And I said, well, I can't make payroll. I'm burning half a million dollars a month or whatever it was, $800,000 a month at the time. And he said, that's a problem. That's not 
a noun, that's a pile of shit you stepped in, right? <laughs> and he actually pulled out a checkbook, just to be poetic and all this. He pulled out his checkbook and wrote me a $500,000 check in the middle of the board meeting and laid it on the table and said, if you'll stop whining and, and go make some hard decisions, here's the first $500,000. I ought to buy you a few days. Go figure out how to recover that company you had yesterday, right? And so that's when we walked out of there and cut the company in half and stopped paying all the executives. And, you, you know, we found a way through it. But that was so enlightening to me because from his perspective, the company didn't all of a sudden have cancer. Somebody just screwed us. Yeah. So go fix it. Go find a way to fix it. And so they just, sometimes you just don't see them coming and they happen anyway. Here's the thing. I just want to take a second, Peter, and I know before you go into the next question, I want to, because we had a question that we were going to ask Drew on this. And honestly, I think the three of us have been around for a long time. We've been doing this. We've been involved in a lot of companies and seen a lot of stuff. I, I've never seen a company be public for like 15 minutes. I don't think it's never happened again. They probably changed the rules. And by the way, they, they, the, the uh, regulatory authorities later, for, for un, not related to us, but for a string of practices, ended up shutting that 1,200 office underwriter down, right, and prosecuting people for just uh, unethical behavior. Well, yeah, it's never happened before. My law firm was one of the biggest securities law firms in the country, and they literally, when we hung up the phone, they literally looked at me and said, okay, we don't, we don't even know what to do now. Well, we're going to have to go. You can't, if you've ever gone public, Greg, you can't raise money. You can't talk to anybody. You've got to right. like 30 day freeze or quiet period. Yeah. And uh, we had to delist from NASDAQ. So <laughs> never traded a share, never got a dollar. Won't do that again. Won't. Today, my bankers are Goldman Sachs in New York. I went to the other end. I said, you know, biggest mistake was signing on with a bucket shop of <laughs> underwriters, you know, because reputable yeah. banks won't do that. So don't, don't go with cheap accountants and cheap lawyers, right? Yeah. Right. This just just for the record, like if you're following, if you're keeping a tally as Drew's telling the story, this is like the third time they're out of business. So, like, I mean, just as the story I'm really, like, really feeling stupid. So. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not, <laughs> that, that's the beauty of this, though, Drew. Like, that's the thing. And I want Peter to get into culture in a second, because there because there's an underlying piece of this that's so important. It's but that, you know, Peter and I have joked about this a bunch of times on this podcast with other guests that. The only difference between going out of business and not going out of business in companies that I've found it before is the fact that nobody actually told me we were out of business. Like that was the only thing. And I wasn't smart enough to figure it out. So I just kept showing up for work and you just trying to figure out like, how do you do it next? Right. And that's exactly this story, right? It's like this, this sort of resilience that's like, all right, well, I don't know how we got other people's money. We got to go figure this out, right? And there's something just enormously powerful about that. Peter, you want to get into the culture side of this? I've worked with Greg's company, Amazing Culture at Outmatch Harvard, um, checked those that journey. Um, I've actually got to spend some time with your company, your yourself, 
some other teammates. And then also I went to this happy hour and it was like, is everyone like this here? I mean, first of all, how do you define culture as for yourself? And my second is question to that is how do you, how do you use that over the years as one of your advantages? Well, first you do it wrong. I think Churchill said that about the Americans a long time ago. They'll eventually do the right thing only after they've tried all the wrong things. So I've tried all the wrong things. In my first company, I got fired because I had a terrible culture and I was yelling at everybody and, and screaming at them because we were public and we shouldn't have been public and the whole world's on my shoulders and we weren't making our, our I knew we weren't going to make our numbers. We never actually missed them, but but we would have eventually. And so that didn't work. And I had one of my close friends, executives back then tell me, Drew, man, if, if as a CEO, if, if you've got somebody in the position that's not cutting it, you can't beat them over the head and, and they'll do better. You can't, you can't yell at them and they'll do better. You have to replace them or support them. You got to pick one of the two, get rid of them or find somebody new. Right. And I've tried to learn in this company that as an entrepreneur and as a CEO with, with two or 300 employees, you, you literally can't do anything except through your people. And so it's when I, I guess realize that you have to love your teams and love to come to work and work with them or all these piles of crap are going to really destroy you, right? I mean, you, you can't get through it. And so our culture, I think, um, today, maybe this is all entrepreneur-led companies. It's a reflection of my personality and whoever's running the shop's personality. I'm sure Amazon mm -hmm. reflected Bezos for years. I don't know right now, right? And and I just love the people I work with and I, and I... I don't keep somebody around if I don't like them. And if, and if they're not working, if they're not cutting the mustard. And so it's the same with clients. It's the same with fellow employees. So what we've tried to do at Ingo is a, I was still the guy that would do a contract on a handshake before we get into this bank regulated world and all that stuff. I've had many multi-million dollar clients that literally just shook my hand and said, okay, let's try this. And, we never had a contract. I have still clients today that pay us $5 million a year that, that we renegotiate the contract all the time and never pull it out and look at it. Right. We'll, we'll go to them and say, look, you know, our cost structures changed. The world's changed. Let's, let's talk about this. And it goes in both directions. So it starts with your, your clients and how you treat them and, and how all of our people treat them. And then it, it, it rolls right up to why don't people come in every day when they got choices, when they got headhunters calling them all the time, wanting to go somewhere else. Right. So Ingo, everybody's here because they want to be here. Um, I don't think I've had anybody volunteer on my team anyway, on my direct team. I don't think I've had anybody voluntarily resign um, unless something bad happened and we had to part ways or whatever. Uh, and that, that just is who we are. It's not a strategy. It's not a plan. It's just who we are. Um, work hard, take care of each other. As you saw, we do play hard, right? Mm -hmm. But what makes us different in this fintech space is we're competing with all the up and to the right shiny objects in Silicon Valley, right? And they don't care. Like Lydia, my chief revenue officer, was here as a sales rep for two or three years, went off on her own to get an education in the market, including in Silicon Valley. 
And she called me up one day when she's working for this high-flying Silicon Valley company, and she said, Drew, I, I don't think I ever realized how much many of these, I don't want to broadly paint Silicon Valley bad because they're not, and I have a lot of clients yeah. out there, but she said, I don't think I ever realized how many or, or how little they actually care out here about the people or about what you told somebody you would do. The whole philosophy was tell them what you got to tell them, tell them the story, tell them and the story needs to be the pitch deck. Everything needs to be slick and everything needs to be up and to the right. And you got to, you got to have a chief of staff because that's the new thing. And you got to have all this stuff. Right. And she said, it's so opposite of Ingo because we always know if Ingo, if you told us you'd do something, then you're going to do it. If we tell our clients we're going to do something, we're going to do it. If we screw up, even if contractually we're not obligated, we're going to make it right. And it's not like that in the broader tech community, right? The turnover right. is super high. The, 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 the money behind a lot of them, they only care about you know up and to the right growth. And you're only as good as the last two quarters. So we have some very patient investors who I think have our similar philosophy and have helped us mm -hmm. stay alive. And it's a partnership with us and our investors It's a partnership with us and our employees. And it's a partnership between us and our customers and the shareholders benefit from all that. And I just think it either is, or it is a, if you have, um, if you're not that you got to find a different way to compete because you can't yeah. make this stuff up. No, right. and, you know, I think uh, I think what a lot of that comes from, Drew, too, is this, you know, is the kind of the transactional nature of these companies. Right. And I don't mean what the product they're selling. I mean, in the kind of the three to the traditional three to five year hold periods, the, you know, where the the tolerance and the time, you know, for anything to go wrong, it's non-existent. Right. You can't you know, the, the journey that you just walked us through is one, you know, we're joking about it with, you know, Stephen and Paul's a ship, but it's a tour. It's the totally normal founders journey. Right. I mean, that's why we called this podcast what we did because it's the meandering road that it takes to actually build something sustainable and build something for the long term takes a lot of time. Right. And, you know, when you operate in these three to five year windows, you just, it's not about that. Right. It's about how much progress or how much, can we gain in this short window of time? And, and it becomes, you know, a very transactional relationship with that company. And I say that, you know, I'm in the VC business myself, right? And it, it is something that I think any VC, any private equity firm um, needs to wrestle with because there is something uh, very misaligned. there. When you can't argue with the math out there, right? I mean, no, they've made... No. But what the math they never talk about is for every thousand companies they fund, how many actually finish, right? And so that's that by definition says it all. Right. They know going in that a, most of these are going to fail and they're looking for Elon Musk or they're looking for Jeff Bezos or whatever. But they never talk about the 900 other companies that had real people who worked their heart and soul at this idea who just one day woke up and, and they got to go start over somewhere else. And so that just breaks my heart. And I don't know, 
you know, we don't just walk away from our shareholders. We, we, you, you just, and our shareholders don't walk away from us and we don't walk away from our clients. And in 22 years, we've almost never lost a client. Right. And so, and, and I don't make as much money as my competitors and I may not be as big as our competitors, but I think we have the best service, the best product, the best relationship with our customers. It's one reason I love my partnership with Goldman Sachs. I, I don't think they have everybody on the planet. They just have anybody that really values their way, right? And who they are. And I can go, you know, down the list. And that's just more of what I identify with is uh, I don't shop at Walmart. I, I, I'd rather go to Ace Hardware Store than Home Depot because I still value that service and human interaction. And I'm a small town guy, I guess, as it relates to that. But there are really good businesses built around that philosophy that last for, for generations and last for a long time. And that's just, you know, who we are. Someday we are venture back. Someday we will sell this company, but hopefully to a buyer who truly values um, the culture, the customer base, the technology and the whole value proposition and not just the P&L, not just the the the. the uh, up and to the right. And I, I, you know, as an entrepreneur, and I'm sure you do this too, I don't know that many companies that get bought that, that ever for a big premium that ever continue on to be what they're supposed to be. And I want to be one of those companies that, that long after I'm gone and we're owned by probably some big strategic, it's still there, still has an identity, right? And the culture still, at least you can still find it somewhere. It's building that hundred-year enterprise, right? A, great, a close friend of mine and Peter's a guy named Martin Babinick, and the story reminds me so much of talking to Martin. Martin is the founder of Trinet, who is they're now they're publicly traded, they're you know New York Stock Exchange, enormous company, and these same principles that you're talking about are very much you know the same things that and the, and even the advice that you gave earlier, right? Of build this company to be something you want to continue to come to work for for decades. It's always that principle because I think there is a path for companies like that today, right? There is really a path for, you know, the, there, there's recaps and trading that will take place, you know, to provide earlier investors liquidity and bring new investors in. But that path, you know, to build something really sustainable, um, you know, I think probably more so than it has been in a long time is is emerging. And, you know, you do have investors that actually look for that kind of, you know, how do we build how do we build something sustainable for the long term? So, um, the, you know, just to kind of to kind of wrap this up, Drew. I mean, um, where where do you see, you know, this? Where do you see the business going? How does this evolve? How do things evolve? You know, how do you see your role as founder changing here in our last minute or two that we've uh, that we've got? Well, I would I can honestly say. Starting about a year, maybe 18 months ago, we got to a strange place in my entrepreneurial career in that that my, my board actually said to me, okay, and now you're pointed in the right direction. You got the right team. Everything's working. Just don't screw it up, right? Just, just leave it alone. And so sometimes that's a hard lesson to learn for an entrepreneur who by definition likes to change stuff, likes to tinker things. You know, my wife told me one day not too long ago that, 
I was the only thing, she was the only thing in my life and my daughter that I hadn't changed. You know, I changed cars, <laughs> I changed everything, right? And so we're at this place where you really want to get to, whereas the CEO, I'm just watch guarding. We don't need any more outside money. We don't, so don't have the capital raising thing to deal with. We've got customers, we've got executives that I trust that are running every aspect of the business. And so sometimes I feel bored. Sometimes I feel like I'm not doing anything when, when I'm actually doing what I think we're supposed to be doing, which is, which is safeguard it and let it grow, safeguard it and let it just let your team, you know, get where they can go. And it's freed me up to focus on, okay, what, what partnership, what deal, what, what thing in the market could really be meaningful to us that I can go focus my time on because operating the business, I don't have to be involved in right now. And that is a very liberating place to be, especially since I'm not a very good operator. Um, and, but what I am is that, Hey, I'm, I want to, I want to create something. And it's like, it's already in the oven and just, don't let you know don't open it up and stick your finger in it right now right so we're in that stage where it's working it's growing the team's in place the customers are happy um and my only wish is let's not step on another pile of shit right let's just between now and between now and the end let's just keep it between the lines i think i can't imagine a better way to end it yeah <laughs> If anyone so, would deal with that, it would be you. So, so the, the future the future plan is just don't step in another pile of shit. That is uh that is perfect. Um this uh this is awesome, Drew. And I mean we we had said, you know, when we first got started, Peter and I were joking about this earlier. This story is uh this story is just, I mean, it is like pure entrepreneurship, right? The pivoting and the then we were out of business. Then we got back. Then we were out. Then we got back. And the business doesn't it's look like anything like it. But underpinning like this thing is this, you know, incredible, uh, incredible culture that you've been able to build. So uh, this is just an awesome story. And uh, it's so glad you were able to join us on the podcast to tell it. It was fun. I'm, 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 I'm flattered. And uh, any way I can help or give back, I'd love to. Absolutely. Well, this is a great this is a great place to start. I think there's a lot of people who are going to learn some great lessons from this thing about resilience and about not being afraid to pivot and, you know, not, not being able to just, just, just keep going. Right. It's just, it's, it's just about that constant forward progress, right? Yeah. It's not going to all be pretty, not, these are not textbook rides. This is a, this is a mess along the way. Um, but stick with it. You know, and I think that's the, that's the story here. I love quotes, as you know, and, and I'll end it with that. I think it was General Patton that said, no battle plan survives the first shot that's fired, right? So that's starting a company. You can write whatever business plan you want, but that first pile of shit's going to change it. <laughs> awesome. It's so true. true. It's uh, so true. I mean, just, just real quick before we go, how do people, uh, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to contact you or learn more about Ingo or yourself or anything yeah, on LinkedIn, any kind of social channels? What's, how do people connect with it? We're out there on LinkedIn and all. I'm pretty easy to find. I'm Drew at IngoMoney.com. I think that's fixing to change to Drew at IngoPayments.com, but they'll both work. And um, our website always has a way to get through to us. But 
usually you'll find me at a fintech show somewhere with a bunch of younger people because I'm the old guy in the room. <laughs> uh, that was the last thing. So my, I ran a meme this Christmas. Doesn't it suck when you, you see some old person in the restaurant and you realize you went to high school with them? Because I don't feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's awesome well we'll we'll, we'll put uh we'll put kind of the links to um to uh to ingo to your linkedin profile stuff like that in the uh in the show notes so drew thanks for uh thanks for joining us on the podcast it's awesome you too thanks ray and peter